Welcome to the Faith Driven Athlete Podcast. If you're an athlete, coach, or sports fan driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected is to sign up for our free monthly magazine at faithdrivenathlete.org. We'll compile the best videos, articles, and resources written by athletes across the country and bring them to you once a month. This podcast, of course, doesn't exist without you, our community. So while you're on the site, please send us any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you and any questions that you might have for our guests. And what I realized is like I was consumed with, you know, the media, the Twitter, the different people either praising or criticizing me. And, you know, that's for every athlete. It's out there. If you want to find it, it's there. And, you know, going into the game, now, I just say, you know, I have an audience of one. I'm not playing for a fan. I'm not playing for whoever I gave my tickets to. I'm not playing for whatever else. It's just do your work heartily as if unto the Lord, and I'm going to give it my best. Welcome back, everyone, to the Faith Driven Athlete Podcast. When you think of the elite college basketball teams in the country, Duke immediately comes to mind. They're a perennial powerhouse defined by high expectations. Today's guest told us all about it. Mason Plumley won a national championship at Duke in 2010 and now plays as center and power forward for the Denver Nuggets. We got to sit down with him and talk Coach K, the Cameron Crazies, and his experiencing transition to the NBA. But that's not all. He talked to us about his entrepreneurial ventures his investing philosophy, and most importantly, his faith. We loved our conversation, and we think you will too. Let's listen in with Mason Plumley. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Athlete. We've got a special guest today, Mason Plumley. Mason and I share a love of Durham, North Carolina together as we both spent meaningful time in that absolutely awesome town. And we also have something else in common. I'm a dad of three boys. And Mason does have a little sister, but a lot of us will know from having watched him and his brothers compete at Duke that he is one of three boys. And I'm looking forward to hearing about Mason's faith journey and his basketball career. But Mason, as I am thinking about siblings and sibling rivalry during this time of COVID-19 quarantine with three teenage boys living at the house with incessant trash talking and dunking over each other, etc. Although to be clear, we're dunking on an eight foot rim just to kind of normalize things here a little bit maybe different than the Plumley house. But what's it like growing up in a family with three competitive boys? And we were talking right before the program got started about the fact that you indeed had a high school high jump of six foot eight. And then you were very quick to add in that for Miles's benefit that he actually jumped higher than you. What was sibling rivalry like in the Plumley house growing up? I would say this, me and my older brother were a year and a half apart. And as you know, having a lot of kids, scheduling wise, we were the same age. You guys are going to play on the same team. You're going to go to the same camp. We are basically accommodating four different agendas. So me and Miles were always fighting with each other. Um, Like you said, very competitive. Marshall was a little far outside looking to compete and we never took him seriously until all of a sudden we turned around in high school and he's 6'10", 6'11", and he's throwing elbows. So (laughs) growing up, you know, he lagged behind. Of course, he was a lot younger than us, but it just made for the best childhood experience. And then, you know, our parents, they laugh now because we drove them up the wall when we lived under the roof, but now we're all very close friends, which we never would have guessed growing up, but it's fun to realize that after the fact. Oh, that's super cool. So I missed this to begin, but thank you for being on the show today and excited 
to cover a whole bunch of different things, basketball and, of course, business with you. But let's start off at the beginning. It sounds like you grew up in a Christian environment. And just tell us about your growing up and the type of family that your parents led and what it was like growing up as a plumley. Yeah. So we've been in Indiana since I was born, you know, small town, Midwest America. My parents had really strong faith backgrounds. My mom grew up in the Catholic church. My dad grew up in the church. And from a young age, you know, it was Sunday school. It was going to service. It was, you know, readings throughout the week. So they really laid a great foundation for it and, you know, really set us up as kids to make an ultimate decision later in life where it then becomes voluntary and it's not forced on you. So, you know, I'm forever grateful to them. You know, it was easy to know where you stood when you got in trouble because um, they were parenting from the same book. So uh, it was a very great thing of them to do to raise us in the church and I'm appreciative for it. Yeah, very cool. So tell us about how your faith became personal to you as you grew up. So grew up in a Christian home, of course, and church is part of the environment, but it feels like with many of the folks that we talked to, somewhere along the way, their faith became personal for them. It wasn't their parents so much and that you really owned it. What was that like for you? You know, for me, it was a combination of college and then also my first couple of years in the NBA. You know, I shared with Justin when we first got together that basketball became the most important thing. And, you know, I, I now realize if it's ever the most important thing, it's not going to be enough. (laughs) And um, it took me struggling with that for a while. And then also entertaining that the things that come with the NBA lifestyle, the access, the opportunity um, to do whatever you want to do. All of a sudden you have all this downtime that you didn't have when you were going to class in college. I would say it's a little harder to get into trouble because, you know, you go class, you go practice, you're so tired, you're crashing. If it's off season, the workouts are pretty intense. So, you know, college, you're still pretty regimented and it's great. You're out on your own, but then, you know, when you enter the professional ranks, it's just a whole different ball game. So there's a lot of downtime and, you know, guys are coming into the league. I came into the league at 22, 23. So I was even more mature, but, you know, guys are coming in at 19, 20 years old and you don't have a full day schedule. So there's just a lot of downtime and how do you fill that time? And how do you find space to still, you know, get in the word and get, fellowship with other people, it's not always easy. So finding that became more important to me the longer I was in the league. So tell us a little bit about your time in college playing for the second best team in the state of North Carolina. (laughs) Tell us about (laughs) the time playing under the, maybe the greatest basketball coach of all time. Yeah. So seven and four, I got to lead with that because everybody knows the rivalry (laughs) record. Yeah. So yeah, it's funny because you ask any of the guys, everybody knows what the record was in that rivalry. It was great playing for coach. You know, at the time when I met coach, he was coaching the, I guess they call it the redeem team now. So just understanding, you know, what his reach was in basketball, the fact that Kobe and LeBron were allowing him to coach them and they were leaning on him. That was like a really cool thing to me. So I was just thrilled to go there. I was thrilled to play for him. I'm a better player for having gone there. And, you know, he challenged me in a lot of ways you know, to the point of being out of the house and figuring out how to live on your own, like he's just as valuable in managing that, you know, he's quick to share his experience of going to West Point and, you know, telling his mom, like, look, I'm fine. You don't need to check in on me all the time. Like I'm doing this. So (laughs) he's more than a coach and anybody that's played for him or is close to him knows that. Very cool. So what was it like when you're at Duke and you get a chance to win a national championship with your brother? It was special. That whole season, it was my freshman year. It was my brother's sophomore year. 
It's a really talented team. And it was a great moment. And it was something that, you know, you enjoy it the first year. And then I'm there another three years thinking it's going to happen again. And, and you're putting all you have into realizing that again. But looking back at it, I'm just, I feel fortunate to be part of that team on the front end of my career because you realize that, you know, there's nothing like the NCAA tournament, the finality of it, the urgency of it, even in the NBA, you know, before this pandemic came about, we were planning something similar where it was going to be an in-season single elimination tournament in the fall to celebrate the 75th year of the NBA. And I was so excited about it because there's really nothing like March Madness and to come out the last team standing out of this field of 68 or 64 or whatever it is, it was awesome. I bet it was. Very, very cool. So while we're on that, we can't glance over the opportunity when we've got somebody from Duke here on the show. Talk to us about your favorite Cameron Crazy moments and help us understand when they're yelling, they're screaming, they're pointing, they're gesturing. Sure, you're blocking out the crowd. You're blocking out the stands to an extent, but there's got to be a limit where those guys cross it and it's just hard not to. Yeah. To me, the thing about the crazies that people don't appreciate unless you're in the arena at the game and can understand what they're saying or what they're writing on the whiteboards and all that is we have the stereotype of Duke for being nerds, overeducated, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's what the crazies are. They come into the game. They all have a scouting report on the personnel of the other team, on the coach. It could be something that they posted on social media. It could be a big shot that they missed. And then they're like the quirky fan base making fun of you in a way that you don't even understand. So, you know, I, I could give examples, but to me, like. Oh, come on. Show us. Show us. You got to give us a couple. Well, I mean, to me, the reference of the players wouldn't even make sense anymore. But like Gary Williams used to come in there and all they would chance sweat Gary sweat. And like by the time he took off his jacket, he was drenched. I mean, there are a ton of those examples, but. I was there for the, I hate to interject, but I've got to because I got a chance to go to many Duke Carolina games at Cameron. And it was just the most amazing athletic experience of my life. And I was there when the guy in the Speedo did the whole thing with Jackie Manuel. I don't know if you got a chance (laughs) to watch that on TV or not, but I just, it was brilliant. It was a really, obviously a really important game. And Jackie just clanged to free throws, not even close. And just (laughs) the way that they get in your head in different creative ways is one of the things that even a fan from the opposing team just goes there and just fired up to hear what they're going to come up with because it's always creative. It's usually not mean. It's just very, very smart. And you mentioned something there I think is really important, is that is some number of the opposing team don't even know exactly what they're saying, but they spend some amount of time like, I know I'm supposed to be really bothered by what they're saying, but what are they getting at? (laughs) And they're thinking about that instead of Mason Plumlee like driving down the lane and dunking on them. Yeah. And it's terrible that I can't give you guys good examples because it was what, six, seven years ago now. But like, I remember going to Maryland and they like found our home phone numbers. So they left a ton of messages on my mom's recorder. Like that's not creative enough for me. The Dukies, the Cameron crazies, they're a little more calculated and I just think they're the best fan base in America. So I'm riding with them all day. Whose scouting report is more valuable? Crazies or Coach K? (laughs) <laughs> well, Coach, Coach K gets a little more angry if his doesn't get executed. So right. uh, I'm going to go with Coach K. So talk to us a little bit about that transition. When we talked last week, you were just talking about high school basketball. You can't do anything wrong. You're you know, the star of the school, the star of the campus. But something changes in college. You went to a big program with big expectations. Talk to us a little bit about that transition. 
Yeah, it is a transition. And I think a lot of players experience it. Anytime you're going to those type of schools or any college for that matter, you come in, even if you happen to be the best player, you're still coming in low on the totem pole. So, you know, you can earn respect in a couple different ways. And it was an adjustment for me because in high school, you know, for the last two, three years, I was the best player, shoot the ball whenever you want, call your own play. Um, and it's just the talent discrepancy is so vast. And I enjoyed that role. Like I love pulling along my teammates in high school. And then all of a sudden you get into college and John Shire is like, yo, what are you doing? I need you to do this. Stop doing that. And it was great to have someone like John to play with as a young player in college, but it's a transition. And, you know, like it happens in the, at the NBA level too. I've had different roles on different teams. And I think the guys who last in the game are able to figure out how to make themselves valuable to a situation and adapt to what's needed. You know, and typically, you know, coaches don't ask you to do anything that you're not capable of, but they will ask you to sacrifice. And, you know, that was the case at Duke. That's been the case at the three NBA teams I played for. And, you know, if you're willing to do it, you can be part of something bigger than yourself, which tends to be more rewarding, I think. Anyway. So you talk about your mentality, your mindset, you're somebody that has high expectations of yourself. How does that mesh with a high expectation program? Is it too much? Can you put too much pressure on yourself there in that season? For sure. You know, I think the media is what drives the business of basketball, the way it's covered, the way people tune in. And you have to reset sometimes and remind yourself it's just a game and we're an entertainment product. And yeah, we all want to win. We're competitors. But, you know, when I see some guy miss a field goal and he's being run out of town or the fan interferes at the Cubs game and he has to enter witness protection almost. So <laughs> like, those are the things where it's like, all right, like, Everybody wants to win and there's a lot riding on the game, but as a competitor, you just have to mentally put yourself in a place of I'm out here to execute, to do what I've trained and prepared to do. And you can never let the moment become bigger than you doing your job. So uh, you're hitting on something that, that I think Duke, especially coach K is known for. It's not just the X's and O's and what's on the court, but he's taught so much about leadership off the court. When you look back at some of the things he taught, just life lessons, leadership, or the culture there, what's some of the things that really prepared you for the NBA and that different lifestyle? Man, there's so much. You know, if I could pick one thing, it would just be that he always preached that it's bigger than you. Even if you are the best player, which I was my last year, you know, it's a collective effort in team sports and in business, as I'm sure we'll talk about in general. It, the neatest things that you can accomplish or, or be a part of are bigger than yourself. So get over yourself. <laughs> and he said that in, in a lot of different ways over the course of my career, but it was a consistent message and one that I'm glad he drilled into us as players. So let's talk a little bit about your faith journey. And just as you transition to the NBA, you go from something you talked about earlier, very structured, very much. You've got a schedule, you've got expectations, you move to the NBA and there's a little bit more free-flowing nature to the schedule. What has your faith journey been like? What are some been some of the things that have helped you along the way? Yeah, well, to that schedule, I think, you know, not just your faith, but, you know, 82 games, 41 of them on the road, plus playoffs. It's no longer, you know, Monday through Friday, go to church on Sunday, right? So I actually, I'm glad I got introduced to you guys because right now media was shared by you guys. And those are the things that you end up leaning on, whether it be, um, 
online video content or podcasts or different things to just stay encouraged or be challenged. And then what a lot of people don't know is before games, before every NBA game, 60 minutes before you have a chapel and arena. So both teams are welcome. Each team has a host chaplain and it's welcoming to all religions, but it's Bible based. And, you know, we just come in, we spend 15 minutes together and it's just a nice time to level set. And, you know, even if you just come in to be thankful for the chance to play that night, it's like a really cool thing. So um, that's something I've leaned on in my, you know, six, seven year career. So let us into that a little bit. Obviously, you know, it's a unique setting. What's shared there is obviously private to the players and different things, but give us a sense for the type of things right before you're about to step onto that court. What's going through the mind of you as a player and other players? What are you reminding yourself of? What truths seem to be the consistent things that you come back to? Man, well, one thing that I've leaned on, I can't even tell you where I heard it first. It might've been from Mo Machowski who runs Athletes in Action, who's actually the Team USA chaplain, but he always had this idea of an audience of one. And what I realized is like, I was consumed with, you know, the media, the Twitter, the different people either praising or criticizing me. And, you know, that's for every athlete. It's out there. If you want to find it, it's there. And, you know, going into the game now, I just say, you know, I have an audience of one. I'm not playing for a fan. I'm not playing for whoever I gave my tickets to. I'm not playing for whatever else. It's just do your work heartily as if under the Lord. And I'm going to give it my best run to win the race. And that's what it is. So something that a lot of people aren't going to know about you is that you have an entrepreneurial bent to you and that you're interested in business. And you've got this cool website and this cool series of Founders Fridays. Talk to us about where that started for you. Man, so it started a couple of years ago. At first, we were producing, you know, four or five minute videos that featured a founder in their company. And it came from, I have a lot of friends that started companies. So coming out of Duke, a lot of people graduate and move to the New York area. And a couple of my classmates started their own companies. And then there's a buddy in my building in Jersey City who started his own beverage brand. Well, I linked up with him. He was teaching me about startups. He was out of Babson, which I think all they do is- Yeah, great entrepreneurial program. Yeah. So he was educating me. He invited me to come by the co-working space where his office was at. And I spent a lot of time there. I met founders of some other neat companies, companies like Greats Brand, who now sells shoes in Nordstrom. So my buddy was with Detox Water, which is an aloe vera beverage. And I was just really inspired by the vision. A lot of them were more mission-based companies. And then also their willingness to take on a path that when you look at the outset, the statistics are not in your favor. The likelihood of having a successful startup is not good. And these people who believe in themselves enough to put it all on the line and go for it anyway, I really admired that courage. So tell us some more about some of the stories and some of the lessons you learned. So you've been doing this for a while and it started off and you interviewed some of these guys on the beverage side. What are some of the business truths that you've learned and has there been any overlap at all with how you think about your basketball and endorsement business? Yeah. You know, I think one of the parallels is competition. There have been very few companies that I've met where it's like, hey, we're the only person doing this. You know, typically you have to beat out somebody for market share or for shelf space or for landing clients if you're a service business. So the competition is, I would say, right up there. Also, 
you know, the vision mapping is what I would call it, but like a founder saying like, Hey, this is the moonshot. This is where we want to go, but these are the steps in order to get there. And, you know, it's never as easy as one, two, three, but, you know, they say, Hey, you know, these were our goals for Q1. We didn't hit them, but this is what we learned. And this is how we're going to get better. So like constantly evaluating yourself and understanding how you can improve and get better is something that I found very similar to being a basketball player. Because after every game as a team and individually, we're watching film, we're saying, okay, what worked, what didn't, when you get in the playoffs, you play a team six, seven times, you're like, okay, you know, what's working, what's not. So as a professional basketball player, I'm presuming that you don't have to buy your own basketball shoes like I do. That gives you extra money that you can use to invest. Tell us about the investments you've made with that basketball shoe money. Yeah. Well, my, my shoe contract's not paying for my investments. I, I've had to dip into the salary, but um, mine's not either. You know what? <laughs> so investments, I, I've played in the seed early stage, acted as an angel, mostly in deals. I've been most inspired and acted on companies that truly believe that they can change the world or change life for somebody else. And that's lent itself more to like healthcare and medical technology. Yeah. There are a couple companies in that space that I've bet on, but I don't write big checks. To me, it's more about being a role player on a cap table and on the team and seeing what value I can add after writing the check. And then like anybody else, there are a few passives where I'm like, hey, I like it. I believe in the founder. I see the value proposition, but I just, there's nothing I can do for you after I write a check. So those are the buckets in my head that I put the deals into. So if you're like me, you look at your investments and you think of them a little bit as children. And so when somebody says, well, what's your favorite investment? You don't necessarily want to highlight one and say it's your favorite. But is there one that you think you might show us or talk about that kind of exemplifies your portfolio and the types of things you do? Maybe something you've done in healthcare or something else like that? Yeah. So here I said I play in the seed stage. The one deal that I did that was later stage was a company called Butterfly Network. Uh-huh. And Butterfly was founded by a gentleman named Jonathan Rothberg. He achieved DNA gene sequencing on a semiconductor chip. He sold that business for upwards of $700 million. And then he turned around and started an incubator in Guilford, Connecticut called 4Catalyzer. Well, 4Catalyzer is basically trying to democratize healthcare device and technology and make it accessible and affordable to the world. So Butterfly was born out of saying, okay, you know, 70% of the world does not have access to medical imaging. Butterfly is going to bring that to the rest of the world. So what he did is not to get too technical, but what has driven the price point on ultrasound probes is the piezoelectric crystals on the probe. He achieved the same image resolution with the semiconductor chip which takes the price point down. Like today they sell the device. It's a single probe, whole body scanner at $2,000. As they get on the main fabrication lines, they believe that they can sell the device for $1,000, maybe even $500. And, you know, while there's incredible business interest around the company, how they view the company is the device becomes the Trojan horse to the biggest medical image repository in the world big data, deep learning, AI, all that is great. But this is me speculating. I feel like as a device company, they could have turned around and sold to GE, Siemens, Philips, whoever, no problem. But I don't want to name names, but if if you saw the players involved in the company, it was more foundations or initiatives that wanted the first probes to go to Uganda or 
you know, Jakarta or these different places. So to me, when you talk about like something that I hope reflects my portfolio, it's a company where the mission is first, the business is second. We'll figure out how we make money and they'll make a lot of money. There's no doubt about it. But the mission initially was to afford medical imaging to parts of the world that had never had it. So that's fascinating. As I listen to you, we invest in medical devices out of sovereigns. And so I know a little bit about it, maybe enough to be dangerous. Unfortunately, I've got some partners who know more, but I got to tell you that I don't know that anybody can throw around the uh, technical terminology the way that you can. And it makes me think about what some of the locker room conversations might be like. Have you found that when the cameras aren't on, you guys do get together and share about what you're doing? And do you actually see your place as having now really being a veteran in the league as a way for people to be thoughtful about how they put investment capital? Yeah. So I think people would be shocked to be in an NBA locker room. You know, in Portland, we had a lot of political discussions. In Brooklyn, it was more business. In Denver, we talk about everything and anything when we talk. But to me, it's you'd be shocked. The guys, like, I'll tell you, I never knew, like, Chris Kamen is a good friend of mine. He's built businesses that are so out of left field. You'd be like, how'd you even get into that? Like, I think he told me about one business he built basically setting up lights for big events. And, like, one of his accounts, like, he had Michael Jackson's last tour before Michael passed. But they would go in and on the stage, like set up all the lights and rent the equipment or something. I think he builds it up to like a, a 10 or $15 million business. Don't quote me on that. But I'm like, Chris, how did, I don't see you going to a concert. Like you're a country bumpkin from Michigan, but he's a great dude. And it's interesting to see the different things that guys get involved in. And it yeah. makes for a fun discussion. That's super cool. You know, locally we're out here in Silicon Valley, locally, Andre Iguodala is known as the big time seed investor getting involved in a lot of technology startups. Does being around New York and in Portland and Denver, do you get a sense for the different local startup ecosystems that are going on around as well? Do you get time to get out there and intersect with the incubators? For sure. Yeah, obviously, you know, Andre's done a great job and I know he's authentic about it. He's not just, you know, releasing books and doing articles. So people come to him like he's, from my understanding, is very involved in what he does. You know, to me, it's been interesting in the Denver ecosystem. I would say there's more like consumer product goods, you know, a lot of like food, beverage, natural food options. You know, I feel like New York, they want to have more of what the Valley has, but, you know, more like fintech and yeah. I don't know, I would say like Wall Street solutions. And then Portland's just a weird place in general. I love living there, but as far as startups, there wasn't a whole lot. Um, I wouldn't even- That's where young people go to retire, right? Yeah, exactly. So like- if you had like a homeless solution for something, it'd probably fare well there. But yeah, it's been fun. And you know, like with our schedule, even though I don't play in the other cities, like when we go to a San Francisco, it's fun to take meetings and, and see what all is out there. Yeah, super cool. So what advice would you give to entrepreneurs and investors? Oh, entrepreneurs, I don't have a whole lot. I would give it probably a Coach K analogy. He always talks about who's on your bus. Um, yeah. Like as an entrepreneur, you decide it's a big responsibility, but you decide who your advisors are, who your investors are. And I see a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with, well, I'm undercapitalized, but do I really want to take this guy's money? You know, what's his interest? What's his angle? And ultimately everybody has one, but who do I want to enjoy this ride with and who can I trust? And so that'd be, you know, my advice to entrepreneurs is figure out who you want on your bus and stick to your initial mission. I think especially like now with technology and, you know, our world is so ever evolving like everybody talks about a pivot like 
I've seen technologies where they get pulled a hundred different directions when they realize what they're capable of. And I just think having a focus and being able to see something through first and have one successful business case before you explore the world of opportunities that are out there for your technology or nanomaterial or whatever it is. For investors, I would just say invest in what you know and what you can diligence, what you can get high level expertise opinion on. Somebody that really understands the industry, like, you know, I didn't invest in Butterfly because I thought it was great. I invested in it because every cousin I have that's a doctor, um, my dad works for an orthopedic implant company. He's a lawyer. So he gave me some insight to the regulatory concerns with the FDA. Like I was really able to lean on a lot of professionals before I decided to make that bet. Because everybody, I mean, entrepreneurs are great. They'll make you think that whatever they're doing is the ultimate answer. That You know how there's always the slide in the investor deck that has every other company over yeah. here. Oh, yeah. And they're in the upper right. Yeah. And they're on the upper right. And it's oh. always the best solution. So like, <laughs> and you only get better at that. I'm still trying to develop my eye for understanding, okay, what is truly differentiated? What is a great strategy? And who am I betting on to pull this off? So, you know, that's a lot of advice, but, you know, I'm trying to figure this out like anybody else. When I was in Durham, uh, Coach K would put together a leadership group every year and bring in some really, really neat guys, four-star generals and CEOs of Delta and just big banks and things like that. And I'd seem to get a spot. Maybe if somebody had canceled, they'd look for a local Durham business leader. So I got to spend some really, really neat time with Coach K and really learn a lot about how to run a business. You know, I'm not an athlete. So the leadership lessons he had for me didn't apply to helping me think about how to do a triangle offense, but they did very much have to do with some of the things that you mentioned, which are how to get the right people on the bus and how to think about crafting the team that you want to go into battle with. As you think about your business and investing career, are there other things that you picked up from Coach K that you see building out beyond just the X's and O's of basketball? Yeah. I mean, if you saw how much X and O stuff Coach K does, people would be shocked. What's made him great is bringing out the best in people. Maybe he wouldn't use this term, but he's like a master motivator. So he wants you to feel like he sees more in you than you feel in yourself. And he wants to be the one to bring that out. So, you know, after he's decided who's on his bus or, you know, for the season or for the business venture, then it's about how can I, one, empower you to be your best and then two, push you and then also be there to support you when things aren't going so well. So his willingness to go to whatever place, whether it's, you know, calling you out in front of the team, having a one-on-one -on -one meeting, having you over to his house for dinner, like he engages with everybody differently, but it's all in the interest of the ultimate objective, which for us was always a championship, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, in business, maybe it's like each business has their own objective, but if you can get everybody on a collective goal, it could be a really cool thing. So you talked about taking the bus and the importance of who's on the bus. Take the bus in a different direction for us. When you think about community for you, just in your career, your stage, what does that look like? I mean, you played with your brother for so many years at Duke and growing up. What does community and specifically on the faith journey uh, look like for you? Man, um, for me, it's team first. We spend so much time with our teammates, you know, seven, eight months a year planes, buses, hotels. So that I would say that's, even if you have a family in the NBA, you spend more time with the team. So that's the first part of my community. And then 
you know, I have grown closer with my brothers, Marshall and Miles, and even Madeline, who's now working in Chicago. But I've made a point to have people in the town that I play in that I connect with and that have no interest in the basketball, right? Or no interest in the business side of things that they've just been great to me, you know, whether it's a home cooked meal or I have them over. To me, it's always good to have those relationships where you don't always have to be doing something. You can just be hanging out. You can, you know, watch a movie, enjoy dinner, enjoy company instead of, because, you know, like the business stuff, it can be addicting. There's always another deal. There's always another game. There's always something to do. But having that friend group is important to me as well. Mason, we're grateful for the time. We always like to end each episode just uh, getting a peek into where people are in Scripture, where God has them in this season. When you think about the season that we're in and just kind of where God has you, is there a verse or a passage or something that's maybe coming alive in His Word that you could share with our listeners? Yeah, to me, given the shutdown of everything, it's just been uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding because I think a lot of us don't understand what's going on right now or understand when we come back, when we open up states, we don't know if we're going to play our season out. And it's really a place to be appreciative of because when else have you been so dependent on something out of your control? And that's the verse I would reference. As we finish up, we'd like to spotlight a ministry that is locking arms with our listeners. We know that you're looking to be on mission in all of your life. God has given all of us families, time, talent, and treasure, all to steward. One of the most often overlooked areas is where we invest our money. Tragically, Christians control more than half the world's wealth, yet many of us are missing the chance to invest in things that deliver financial return and can make a spiritual impact. So this week, we wanna make sure everyone knows about the faith-driven investor. Whether you're a fund manager, a professional investor, or someone looking to put money to work in your retirement fund, it's a weekly podcast, a monthly newsletter, a daily blog that will help you understand that God owns it all and He cares deeply about how we steward what He's entrusted to us. You can check it out at faithdriveninvestor.org. Thank you very much for joining us for today's show. The best way to stay connected with us is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenathlete.org. We're very grateful for the opportunity to serve the larger faith-driven community. Come check out our podcast at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org and also faithdriveninvestor.org. We, of course, want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you. And it's been very rewarding to see listeners coming to the sites from more than 100 countries. It's very important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your journey, one that you're proud of and that you'll share with others. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of many of our friends, executive producer Justin Foreman and program director Johnny Wells. Music by Carl Kegwell. You can see more of his work at summerdregs.com. Audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco. 